in addition to announcements, I have the privilege of introducing today's speaker to you, something that Michael would do if he were here. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, uh, just thank the Lord. <laughs> That's probably the best thing that can be said. Uh, I've never preached before, so this will be fun. I have told a lot of stories, and uh, I am prone to colorful embellishment, which is really in stark conflict with preaching God's Word. So today, uh, we'll be in First and Second Samuel, and I'm going to do my best to stay out of First and Second Darren, because I think that the Lord's Word uh, is deserving of being as accurate as we can be, so... Um, as a person who struggles with ego and desiring admiration and seeking likability from people, uh, you can take an opportunity like this and really mess it up. So we're going to pray that the Lord uh, hold my tongue and that Darren shrinks and God increases in today's uh, what, what should, should ultimately feel like a sermon, but there's potential for that to go really badly. So we'll see. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, as we gather as a body this morning to uh, honor you and worship you, and Lord, to hear of your word, we're st struck with just the blessing that it is to be gathered with family, Lord, our, our church family, and we ask that you be with Colleen Eastman's family as they are um, dealing with loss and tragedy. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would, at this time, Reveal yourself to those that are lost and draw close to those uh, who are mourning and who need comfort, Lord. And we pray for Golub's family uh, back in Virginia, Lord. Father, you are a God of miracles, and we make no apology in asking you to perform one for this woman. Lord, you are capable. You are the mighty healer. And we pray as a family, Lord, that you would touch Gollif's sister and strengthen those in faith that are gathered around her at this time. Lord, we also would pray that you would be with uh, our church as we're uh, searching for a new teaching pastor. Father, you would reveal to us who that is to be, uh, Lord, and we're grateful for those who have filled the pulpit thus far. And Lord, as we bring your word this morning, we, we do pray in sincerity, Lord, that it would be your word and not the word of anyone else, including myself. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So uh, having the privilege of teaching or preaching in a Bible church brings with it some benefits. And one of them is that uh, we believe the Bible here. So as long as I stick to the Bible, we should be good, right? So uh, probably many of you here are probably familiar with 2 Timothy 3.16. I'm going to read it for you, but you can shout it out loud if you know it. it. Only if you know it in the ESV though, right? So just kidding. You can shout it out however you like. But uh, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We're hopefully 
going to prove that to be uh, true and accurate today. I know it's God's word, so it is true and accurate, but we're going to take a, a reasonably obscure Old Testament story or event. I know there's some danger in calling things a story because people can tell a story, but uh, for this sake, we're going to call this a, a Bible story from the Old Testament, and uh, it's recorded in uh, primarily in First First uh, Samuel 15. But we're going to go to a few other places in Scripture today, so that we can get a few more pieces of this puzzle. Uh, I mentioned earlier in our announcements that we do have a group of people going through uh, the Bible, and you probably just finished the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is a complicated book with lots and lots of detail. And uh, primarily, Leviticus talks about uh, the many sacrifices that God asked his people to perform uh, once they came out of Egypt. Some of those sacrifices are older than that, but uh, this is one of the books that the Lord gave directly to Moses uh, after their um, traveling out of Egypt. And in that complicated book of Leviticus, there is much detail, and it's principally details about sacrifices. So we're going to learn a little bit about that. We're going to see that God would rather have our obedience than a sacrifice. We're probably, unfortunately, going to talk about how sometimes our failures lead to some pretty painful consequences for ourselves and for those around us. Uh, we as human beings, even those of us that are children of God, that are new creations, and we have the benefit of the indwelling Spirit of Christ with us, even with those things, we can find ourselves struggling at times to obey the Lord. We might partially surrender or partially obey, but we struggle with fully surrendering. Maybe at times we want to obey the Lord, but we also kind of want to see if we can get something for ourselves out of that deal. The good news is we're in good company. The Apostle Paul felt the very same way. If you look in Romans uh, 7.15, Apostle Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. What he's describing there is that struggle. We have the indwelling Spirit of Christ in us, prompting us and compelling us to do the right things that are in obedience to God, but then we also have our flesh, which is still alive, that may want something contrary to that for us. We might be looking for obedience to keep our conscience clear, but we might also be looking to find some way for personal gain or some self-preservation. We know that grace abounds, right? Amen? And forgiveness is available to the repentant. Amen? The blessings and the assurances of our Lord are all around us. If you walk this life, you can't go 10 minutes before you realize what a blessing that we are experiencing. But in spite of all that, actually during all that, we can actually lose sight 
of the value that God places on our obedience. We talk a lot about grace. We talk a lot about forgiveness. Those things are true. Thank the Lord those things are true. But God wants us to obey him and follow him. So this story that we're going to talk about today is particularly special to me. It's one that I discovered some time back, and the Lord has used it in my life, and I'm hopeful and prayerful that the Lord will use it in your lives as well. So I know we talked about 1 Samuel, but today's story actually starts in the book of Exodus. In that book, God has just led his people out of 400 years of captivity in the land of Egypt. And God now is leading them across the desert, across the wilderness, um, to the promised land. So this is a journey, and it's a long and difficult journey, and it's filled with some pretty exhausting challenges. Uh, And the Israelites at this point in their journey are pretty weak and pretty vulnerable. In fact, they just went three days without water. So let's uh, turn on our Bibles to Exodus 17, uh, verse 8. And while you're doing that, I'm going to take a sip of water because apparently I'm going through a wilderness and desert myself at the moment. Lucky to have this. This is just water. I'm not that nervous. Okay, if you found uh, Exodus 17, uh, we're going to read about this famous Old Testament battle. We're going to start in verse 8. The first word, and I'm reading from the ESV, so if it doesn't line up exactly with what you're reading, uh, it's okay. God protects his words, so you read along as you can. But in the ESV, the first word of of, uh, verse 8 is the word then. That means after, right? So this is right after the water crisis that are listed in the previous verses. Okay, reading along. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with my staff of God in my hand. Let us stop there for a minute. Uh, I think this is an interesting war strategy. You guys stay down and fight, and I'm going to go on top of the hill and hold a stick. This is no ordinary stick. This is Moses' staff. And if you read uh, just how the Lord had used that staff in the past, you know that this is not an ordinary walking stick. But uh, nonetheless, that's his strategy, is that he's going to go up before God and hold up his staff and... uh, It also kind of is an indicator of just how desperate they may be, right? He he didn't say, I'm going to have some F-16s fly over and we've got recon going down on the ground. None of those things. This was, we need the Lord to deliver us and protect us from the Malachites. So picking up in the next verse. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, 
while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. A banner there being like a flag or a standard, a symbol of being united and belonging to God. So he puts, The Lord is My Banner at this altar he builds, and it says, a hand upon the throne of God, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So the Amaleks attack, we call them Amalekites, right? We'll learn about that in a few minutes. The Amalekites attack Israel on their journey out of Egypt, and God vows to get revenge on them. God's pretty emphatic. He says some pretty crazy things. Write this down utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. So, so let's read that piece again. These are bold words. God said, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of God the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. He wanted Moses to write that down. If you were to read ahead in Scripture into the book of Deuteronomy, Moses wrote that down. In fact, he wrote it amongst some other laws that the children of Israel were to follow. It's listed in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. This was important instruction from God. He told Moses, write this down and say it in the ears of Joshua. Moses at that time knew that Joshua would be his predecessor. So he wanted Joshua to know this was how important this really was. So let's talk a little bit about who the Amalekites were, right? We know that they attacked Israel on this journey across the desert, but, but let's talk about who are the Amalekites, who they descend from and where do they live. So the most common understanding is that these were pirates, raiders, and plunderers. Another location called them marauders. This was a, a, a difficult uh, group of people, would be quite the understatement. Now, we don't have the full genealogies uh, from this group of people because they're not Israelites. Our scripture shows us principally the genealogies of Israel. This was not Israel, so we don't have that in scripture. Uh, we have a little bit of it. We have some pieces of it. We're going to piece it together. And don't worry, I had some professional help on piecing this together. This is not just Darren, right? So uh, what we do know is that the Amalekites were descendants of Amalek, right? It's in the name, Amalek, Amalekites. And Amalek, the original Amalek, was actually the grandson of Esau and Esau's Canaanite wife, Ada. And they were nomadic people and they lived near the land of Canaan. So let's go back 
This is the grandson of Esau and Ada. So Esau and Ada had a son named Eliphaz, and Eliphaz, through his concubine Timnah, produced Amalek. There's a couple issues with Amalek, really, right from the beginning. Um, Esau chooses a wife from the Canaanites, and this was the wrong choice for Esau. Um, if you recall the, scripture, the story in Scripture of Isaac and Rebekah, which is one of the most iconic love stories uh, in Scripture, Father Abraham sends his most trusted servant, Eliezer, to go find a wife for Isaac. Abraham is so emphatic that a Canaanite woman not be brought into his camp, that Abraham makes Eliezer swear and take an oath that he will not bring back a Canaanite wife for his son Isaac. Now, there's a little bit of indication in this passage. If you want to look at it later, uh, it is in Genesis 24. But this oath that is required, uh, this is something that they took pretty seriously. And if you read the details about the physical gestures associated with this oath, you'll understand what I mean. You had to take this thing pretty seriously. So moving forward uh, in Genesis 28.6, Esau, the son of Isaac and Rebekah, right? So, so Eliezer goes and does not get a Canaanite wife for Isaac. He brings back Rebekah, who's not a Canaanite, and Isaac and Rebekah are joined together in marriage, and they have this son Esau and another son Jacob. So Esau knows how everybody feels about the Canaanite women. So in Genesis 28.6, Esau, the son of Isaac and Rebekah, intentionally takes a Canaanite wife just to upset his parents. Really, that's in Scripture. He takes a Canaanite wife just to upset his parents. You've got to pause there for a minute. You, you hear people talk about that. You know, maybe it's in a movie or a sitcom or something. But is, this, this actually happened. He takes a Canaanite wife just to make his mom and dad mad. Crazy. Imagine just for a minute if you're assigned to do the premarital counseling for that group. Right? You're doing the engagement counseling. Think about how that might go. Well, well Esau... Uh, what is it principally you like the most about Ada? Well, I like her because my mom and dad don't. <laughs> so this is, this is a problem, right? This really shows the rebellion of Esau. So moving forward, right? So they have Amalek. Now Amalek, the seed of rebellious Esau and his Canaanite wife, Amalek becomes the chief of one of the tribes that descend from Esau. And that tribe ultimately becomes the Amalekites in the name, right? Amalek, Amalekites is his tribe. So before we go too much further, I want to remind everybody of this, that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he even made this promise to Moses, that God would bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. 
So when the Amalekites attack Israel on their journey, at a time again where Israel was weak and vulnerable, God says, I'm going to get revenge. I'm going to have justice against the Amalekites for what they did to my children. Now, it does take some time for God to enact his justice against the Amalekites. We think it's about 300 years later. Uh, there's some dates and uh, some things we could look at. We're going we're gonna to ballpark it at 300. And God wants to enact this judge, uh, justice against the Malachites when Israel finally has their first king, King Saul. So God says, okay, now's my time. Now, King Saul, if you know the story of King Saul or you read about King Saul, you know that he was not a perfect man. I can identify with that. Probably some of you, if you're honest. Right? I see a couple of heads shaking. Yeah. But perfection wasn't necessary in this case because God sent a provision to King Saul in the form of the prophet Samuel. God sends his prophet Samuel, who is God's spokesman and messenger. And, and King Saul and Samuel already had a bit of a relationship because it was, it was Samuel that anointed King Saul uh, when he became the king. So now God sends Samuel the prophet over to tell King Saul this message. So let's turn in our Bibles together to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. We'll be there for a few minutes. Okay, hopefully you're somewhere in the ballpark of 1 Samuel 15. We'll start in verses 1 through 3. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over the people of Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, Ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Some of us might find God's justice against the Malachites to be pretty harsh. Some of us might find a little joy in seeing God get his justice against someone that so brutally harmed the children of Israel. But you know, it doesn't really matter how we feel about it. You see, God's God, and we're not. He decides when he's going to have his justice, not us. So how we feel about it really isn't the issue this morning. We just have to believe God. So in faith, we're going to move on. Set that behind you. Don't think about that for a little while. What I do want you to think about is the specificity in which God provides this instruction to King Saul, right? That was a very specific list of how he wanted this done. King Saul would be very acquainted with how specific God's instructions can be at times, right? 
King Saul was an Israelite. He was the king of Israel. Israel was uh, following the Levitical law at the time, and they were very well acquainted with just how specific and how detailed God's instructions would be in the way that sacrifices and other things were done. So just a few things that he would have known. He would have known about the specifics, and if you've read, if you're reading along with us uh, through Scripture this year, the specifics of how the tabernacle was constructed. Think about how detailed that is. The way the Ark of the Covenant was constructed, constructed in those very detailed, specific instructions from God. The specific way the priests were to dress. Remember that? The specificity of each of the sacrifices and the instructions to make them. King Saul knows how specific and how detailed our God can be. In fact, King Saul would also be familiar with what happens when you don't follow God's details. Like the story of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who God put to death simply because their failure to follow some specific instructions. King Saul would know just how disappointed the Lord would be if he were not to follow and obey completely. So we know that King Saul knows and understands. But let's see what he does. Let's pick it up in verse 4, 1 Samuel 15, verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and, and numbered them in, to Liam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is the east of Egypt. And he took King Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they committed to destruction. King Saul knew exactly what the Lord wanted from him. Does that sound like what the Lord asked him to do? It's even pretty clear that King Saul knew what was going to happen and knew why it was going to happen because he went to the neighbors, the Kenites, and said, hey, we're going to destroy all the Amalekites, but we want to get you out of the way because you were, you were good to Israel when we came up out of Egypt. Saul knew this, what this was about. This was because of what the Amalekites did to Israel. He knew the Kenites didn't do that to Israel. and By contrast, they were great to Israel. So he says, get out of harm's way because there's going to be a war here. Just more evidence of King Saul's understanding prior to his disobedience. So he does attack the Malachites. He doesn't follow the instructions. King Saul leaves King Agag alive. 
He, he does capture them, but he leaves them alive. And he kept the best of the livestock and anything else that he wanted. So before we continue on in this story, let's pause for a minute and think about what could have been King Saul's motivations to keep King Agag alive and to keep for himself or for his people all these things that the Lord said they needed to destroy. So let's, let's talk about King Agag. Why would he keep King Agag alive? I'm thinking that maybe it was a trophy, right? Look what I've done. I've, I've conquered the Amalekites, and to prove it, here's their king here in a cell. Or maybe it was Saul, King Saul's insecurity, and he wanted to keep King Agag alive to stay popular with people so that they could see what he had done, see his accomplishments. He was worried, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it was just a memento of a victory that he had. We read about soldiers in war that will take something back as memorabilia of their experience. But whatever it was, it was probably some credit to himself would be where I kind of arrived after reading this. Again, that's first and second Darren, not first and second Samuel. So uh, it's not clear at this point yet what his motivation is. So what about the plunder? Why would he keep all the best of the livestock? Now, he was already king, and God was already blessing Israel, but maybe he felt like these are things we can use, right? Why, why get rid of a good cow that can be food or something? Or maybe he planned on dispersing those to people that helped him in this war. Here's some of the, here's some of the booty. Take this and... Thanks for, thanks for helping out today. Maybe it was his lack of faith. Maybe he felt like he needed to hang on to some of these things that had value and worth and usefulness just in case God didn't provide in the future. Also could have been peer pressure. Maybe he would face a lot of criticism for slaughtering these useful things. He could have been a fear, fearful of criticism. I don't know. So for mo that's King Saul. We're guessing it, what his motivations would be at this point. He later tells us a little bit about it, and we'll get to that. But if you're faced with those things or anything similar in life, what... What are your motivations, right? What are our motivations? Where do they come from? When we have desires that are contrary to what God requires, what would be our motivation to try to wiggle around and find some way to not completely fulfill that? So we know from, from 1 John, the book of 1 John, chapter 2, in describing how we are tempted in sin, First John says that it's typically the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I think about my own sin nature and the own ways that I'm tempted. 
And I can see that they typically fall pretty nicely in those three categories. Having been in administration for many years, when I encountered uh, people who hadn't made the right choice, if they were honest and explained, even those that weren't in Christ would pretty much describe their motivation and it lands in one of those things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So this event is now over, at least the war portion of it, right? Samuel had come and told Saul, okay, it's, God says he's ready. Let's go, get avenge, go avenge uh, Israel against the Malachites. Saul goes and he does it. He doesn't follow God's instructions completely, but, but he, he does to a degree. And so let's, let's go to the rest of the story uh, in verse 10. 1 Samuel 15, picking up in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned to pass on and went down to Gilgal. So you remember a few minutes ago when we started this story, this initial attack from the Malachites where Israel was weak and vulnerable, and when it was over, when God had done this for Israel, when God had delivered Israel from the Amalekites initially, Moses set up an altar to God. Now God is having his justice against the Amalekites, and he asks King Saul to do it. And what does King Saul do? He sets up an altar to himself. Imagine what that would look like to the Father. I delivered you from them, and you put up a monument to yourself. Let's move on to uh, verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the... Let me read that again. And, Saul, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul's pretty happy about what he did. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul replied, They have brought them from the Malachites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and owe the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. Just stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. 
Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Little side note, here's an opportunity for us to observe Samuel's reaction to someone in the family of God failing to obey. Samuel was angry and heartbroken. He cried to the Lord all night. It's okay. In fact, it's normal that we get angry or feel pain and or sadness when one of our brothers rebels against our Lord. Okay, back on track. Verse 15 This is where Saul starts to make excuses for his decisions. He says, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Now for me, this is where this story comes together. Samuel says, Has the Lord, we're in verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen to the fat of rams. Samuel explains it right there to Saul. The Lord would have preferred you just obey him than to make sacrifices. I think that, this is my summary, this is Darren, I think sacrifice is intended to make things right with God. I think obedience is about keeping things right with God. If you obey, you don't have to sacrifice. I know God does forgive the repentant, but he would rather us just obey. This is true in the New Testament as well in the Old Testament. After Christ's work on the cross, there's no need for us to make animal sacrifices. And although God freely forgives the repentant through the sacrifice of Christ himself, he still desires and requires for his children to live in obedience. So Samuel the prophet who anointed anointed Saul as king who then instructed Saul to destroy the Amalekites. And then Samuel hears directly from the Lord about Saul's disobedience. And now Samuel, God's prophet, has to deliver some bad news to King Saul. He informs King Saul that God will be removing him as the king over his people. King Saul did remain the king of Israel for quite some time. There was a transition there, and we're not going to read that today because it's about 15 chapters, but we think it covers about 10 years. So eventually what happens is that King Saul does die in a battle 
and King David uh, follows King Saul as the new king of Israel. So we're going to pick up this story 10 years later. So turn over to 2 Samuel, the first chapter. Second Samuel, the first chapter, beginning in verse 1. I'll begin. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, stop. This is 10 years later. Now David's going to strike down the Amalekites. This is one of the things, one of the consequences of Saul's sin and disobedience from 10 years earlier when he was supposed to completely eliminate the Malachites. Now here Israel is 10 years later fighting them again. So after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Malachites, David remained in two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who was told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. What's happening here is that Saul himself was also out in this battle, and he was mortally wounded, but he was still alive. And this Amalekite stumbles by him, and Saul knows that he's not going to survive this. He knows that he's defenseless in this battle any further, and he knows that the enemy is closing in. And so he asks this guy to finish him off because he doesn't want to be taken alive and have the last few hours of his life be in the hands of his enemy. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to you, my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword." And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? 
And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. Just, just pause here and picture this ending, right? And all the ways that this story can end for King Saul. How ironic is this ending? An Amalekite comes forward to talk about Saul's death. Should that Amalekite even be alive at this point? What a tragic way for King Saul's life to come to an end. You know, here's Darren again. I'm telling you the difference between Darren and Scripture. I think that we think of ourselves in our finest hour. But unfortunately, people remember us in our final hour. Our final hour matters, and it's often our legacy. But what a terrible final hour for King Saul. Imagine what he'd been going through, what might have been going through King Saul's mind, laying there mortally wounded but still alive, knowing that he would be face-to-face with his creator in a very short time, and the very last person that he sees is an Amalekite, the very symbol of, God, of King Saul's disobedience. This story scares me to death, just being honest with you. I ran across this story some years ago, and it created a pivot in my life. We all have sin in our lives, and we have to put it to death daily, right? Completely, thoroughly, over and over again. So as we're pondering this story of King Saul, we have to ask ourselves, uh, what areas of our own lives have we not put to death completely or don't put to death when they pop up every hour or every day or every week or however long it is for you? Do we look at God's power and authority in our lives as an opportunity for self-promotion or self-gain? I can have anything I want because God's on my side. Or maybe if I obey God, I can get a little something out of it for myself. If there's a sin in your life that you refuse to death, I can tell you that Apostle Paul provides us instruction in multiple places in the New Testament that we are to put to death sin in our lives. There are some things that, generic, not generic, but general teaching for all of God's children, one of them being 2 Timothy 2.19, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's not specific instruction to an individual. That's general instruction to all of God's children. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So what's your sin? Is it the love of money? Riches? 
material things. Like me, a desire to please people, to be admired. Is it the fear of people? Or maybe it's the allowance of the influence of people in your life that are not following Christ. There are things that God requires of all of his children, like we just mentioned. Sometimes there's things that it requires of an individual, such as the story of King Saul. His individual requirement for King Saul was to go kill all the Amalekites, to exact God's justice against Amalek. Now, God had waited 300 years to do that, and he had lots of other opportunities. This one, this piece of instruction, was unique to King Saul. There's other examples in Scripture of unique individual instruction to, to someone, like, uh, like Jonah. Remember, he wanted Jonah. That was unique instruction to Jonah, go to Nineveh, take my message. There's others, like Noah, build an ark. He didn't tell anybody else to build an ark. He told Noah to build an ark. Moses himself, he told Moses, I'm going to use you to free my people from Egypt. Egypt, Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years. God could have brought about any other way, but that was unique to Moses. So you have to ask yourself, is there some unique piece of calling or instruction that God is compelling you as an individual to do? Not the, not the general stuff. We're all supposed to die to sin, right? Are we clear on that? We're all, all God's children are supposed to die daily to sin. And the other type of instruction, specific, unique, direct instruction to you as an individual, is God compelling you to do something specific that you don't want to do. Or that you're going to eventually do, but you're going to do it in your own way. See if you can maybe make it less painful or more enriching in some way. Let's go back and see what it was that was Saul's downfall because he admits to it in his conversation with Samuel. Still back in... uh, 1 Samuel 15. Go back in your Bible to 1 Samuel 15. This is where we were for the first part of the story. We're going to pick it up in verse 24. Here's our explanation from King Saul himself as to why he did this. 1524, he says, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He heard God's voice through the prophet Samuel. Those were the instructions. The instructions came from God's voice. But he said, I didn't obey God's voice. I obeyed their voice. That's also a pretty familiar excuse in Scripture. If you recall, uh, Aaron's brother Moses, Moses had been gone to meet with the Lord. He leaves Aaron in charge of Israel, and he comes back, Moses comes back, and Aaron had created a golden calf. So Moses has this interaction with Aaron, and basically Aaron says, You know, the people influenced me to make this calf. 
Same thing, listening to the voice of the people. Aaron knew not to make any graven image. That was the voice of God. But he makes a golden calf. That was the voice of the people. So his motivations, King Saul's motivation, by his own admission, was that he obeyed the voice of the people. There can be other reasons. There can be other motivations you have that are keeping you from following and obeying God completely. One of those examples from Scripture is God's man, Samson. It wasn't the voice of people that influenced Samson. It was the infection of affection of women. So here's our time for personal reflection this morning. What are the Amalekites in your life? Who or what is your King Agag trophy? What's the plunder that you're taking for yourself? The battles that the Lord helps you win, what are you keeping for yourself out of that? Are you living by God's standard or are you influenced by the world's standards? Are you following the voice of God? Are you following the voice of people? What should you be putting to death? Let's pray. Lord, we started this journey through this event in your scripture, reminding ourselves that all scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Father, it's our prayer that this tragic event from this important man's disobedience would stand as an example, Lord, of the value of obeying you and your heart for us to obey you, Lord. Lord, help us to hear your voice and have the courage to follow it. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.